Hey there, welcome to Your Basket is Empty. My name's Tim and I'm your host. On today's episode, I chat with James from The Bike Club, who are a subscription-based direct consumer brand aiming to make cycling more affordable and sustainable. We touch on their journey, how they're dealing with the current economic climate, and the best and worst decision James has ever made. As with the last episode, uh, and I suppose the foreseeable episodes, uh, this has all been recorded on Zoom, so the fidelity is not quite where it should be, but uh, please bear with me. Before I get into it, a quick word from my sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Clavio, Clavio, the growth marketing platform used by more than 30,000 e-commerce brands. In uncertain times, supporting your local community and fostering relationships by being open and empathetic is a strategy that will be appreciated and remembered far beyond today. One of the best channels to deliver these communications is, and always will be, email. Email marketing is one of Clavio's foundational offerings and... When you leverage personalization driven by a customer insight, you will create memorable marketing moments that cultivate lifelong relationships. Clavio truly understands how challenging it is for each and every business right now. Clavio is here to help brands communicate, engage, and foster relationships now and when all of this is just a distant memory. So go and visit them at clavio.com slash your basket is empty. That's K-L-A-V-I-O dot com slash your basket is empty. Enjoy the episode. James, welcome to the podcast. Usually I start by asking how people are. I think that's a bit of a loaded question at the moment. So <laughs> um, where in the world are you and did you enjoy your Easter break? Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. Uh, I am currently in a two-bed flat in Ballon with no garden, which is quite tricky during oh, lockdown no. when you have an 18-month-old. So yes, we're, we're coping. Uh, we're very close. Yes, that's good. Um, we had a nice Easter, but uh, but it wasn't quite the Easter you want to have, right, with family around you and everything. So, so it's yeah. a strange year this year. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think we've all been in the same boat. But anyway, let's rewind a bit, and I'm keen to talk about the bike club. So how did it all begin, and what is the mission? Okay, thanks. So I think... The first point to make is that Alex, my co-founder and my wife and I are both very keen cyclists and we are always keen on remaining active and getting outdoors. Um, I come from a consumer finance background and I've always been quite interested in sustainability and what we can do to create a more circular economy. Um, When I was working at one of the big high street banks, um, we started looking at ideas in consumer finance and how we could use that to uh, grow grow the business, basically. And my brother's a conservation scientist and he works for the OECD. And we got talking about what, how we could maximise utility of assets within the economy. And sort of one thing led to another. And we, we got talking about lending people prof- like very nice racing bikes. But then we came to realise that actually that product doesn't work quite so well because there's less of an there's less of a sort of utility curve in it. Whereas in a kid's bike, actually one of the big barriers to getting your children riding a really high quality lightweight kid's bike is the cost of it. And actually it works really well when we can put together like-minded borrowers to borrow much more higher value assets and then share them between each other. So basically the bike club, it's it's, it's a very simple concept, pay monthly kids bikes, you exchange as your children grow. But the thinking behind it is all about trying to be the lender for the circular economy and trying to create that much more sustainable way of consumption that we all need to get to. 
Really interesting. I do think, and I'd love to chat to you maybe on a separate podcast because I'm a cyclist as well. And I like the idea of the high-end fancy bikes that get rented out, particularly if you're in different places in the world. Yeah. And you go on so holiday I, and you're like, oh, I could really use yeah, yeah. That, so you you got, know, so that latest canyon. Why don't I rent yeah. it for the weekend? I know what you mean. So, so the um, renting in Tenerife and, and also the rent at the Rafa Cycling Club, they have yeah, some, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They yeah, do exactly. a lot of they do a lot of short term rental. It's look, we do long term rental, so we want to get our bikes out there for over ninety days at people's houses. Whereas obviously in short term, you're doing it for a day or even an hour. And I think it's and it's a very different type of business model. Um, and the, the what the difference is is that it creates an occupancy problem. And I can get very boring and start talking about economics here. so please do stop me i quite like that so yeah but anyway yeah we'll keep it light for the for the rest of the audience yeah okay okay um but it's a but but, you know i'd i'd love also to to have a fleet of very expensive road bikes which we could rent out people (laughs) then i'd get i get access myself which would be quite nice really yeah yeah okay well that might be phase two the bike club plus or something like that so you (laughs) you 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 touch on uh your your business partner is also your your non-business partner too so I'm keen to explore that maybe just for a second. So how does that work? I find the like the concept of co-founders fascinating anyways, but when you've got uh, co-founders that are both kind of life partners, h- how does it work? You know, talk me through, uh, have you got um, specified roles in the business? Um, do you, <laughs> is when you get home, is it home time and that's it? Like h- how do you kind of maintain balance and, and work through that kind of that relationship? Yeah, it's it's a good it's a good good question. I think there's more there are more people who set up businesses with their partners than I think people realise. Um, you could even argue that Amazon was set up by Jeff Bezos and his uh, ex now ex wife uh, yep. back in the day. Now, so certainly with Alex and I, 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 I my title is the CEO, and then she's the chief operating officer. She's much more involved with the business day to day. Um, and deals with a lot of those day-to-day operations of getting bikes to families and making sure those families are happy. Um, and a lot, and most of the staff report directly in turn on their day-to-day roles. Whilst as the CEO, I'm more responsible for the broader, bigger picture strategy thinking, um, the bigger problem solving, and where we are going to be in six weeks, six months, that sort of that sort of time. So I suppose the best way to think about it is Alex deals with the next 24 to 48 hours of the bike club, whilst I deal with the next the the six weeks to six months of the bike club. And so as a result, we are quite separated in those roles. Now, it would be probably a lie to say that we uh, separate out work from play, and we do often bring quite a lot of it home, particularly at really like busy times. So currently with fundraising, that's super busy, if any any founder knows that. And so it's really hard just to find that that period of time. And obviously, in lockdown, everything is expected. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's like yeah, exactly. So I suppose in a, in a normal uh, set of circumstances, it's difficult. And right now, it's probably nearly impossible to maintain the balance. Um, but you, you, you touched on an interesting point there. So, what what does the broader um, uh, team look like at, at the bike club? Uh, well, so we we so so we got a sort of executive team um, that's mainly made up. Of actually, we've got a lot of lot of women work for us. So we got Anna, our, our head of our head of operations. Uh, we then got Amanda, our head of marketing, and that us four probably make up the full time uh, uh, sort of senior management of the business. And then we've got um, 
and then we've got various other roles roles out there but we split between we have our own warehouse and, and distribution team uh, that's based out of uh, a site in east london and then we also have um which currently is, they're currently working on site obviously and then we also have a um a uh, comms team and customer sort of uh or i suppose membership services team that they're all remote at the moment which is made up of a lot of people who often are looking for different working hours so things like students so we have some law students who work for us and it works quite well for them and then we also have um we also have our sort of various full-time roles as well and you i i read that you guys um i believe you got the the fitness first founder on board in some capacity is that right Oh yeah, that's right. So at the board level, that's right. So the chairman of our business is a chap called Mike Balfour. He's the founder of Fitness First. Um, he's been, you know, he came on as one of our lead seed investors uh, just uh, back in January 2019, and he's been transformative. So Mike acts as very much a, a mentor to myself and Alex. He's um, uh, we we speak basically every day, including weekends, which can be a bit bit, bit much sometimes. Uh, so Mike, <laughs> um, we. But, you know, I'm sure Mike's an avid listener of the podcast, so he's definitely going to hear this. Yeah, yeah. But he's he's um he's fantastic because you know he took a, uh, a well basically a bankrupt squash club back in the nineties and grew it into an eight hundred and fifty million pound turnover global chain of fitness clubs and totally changed that industry. Um, and so his his experience is is t- it's totally invaluable to us as a team. It's been uh, yeah, it's been fantastic having him on board, frankly. And and I suppose that, that is a slight deviation there. And would you recommend that to, to other founders? I'm always interested in that concept of mentorship and, and, and people sitting on boards, you know, directors, non-exec directors. In, in your experience, has it been something that you would recommend to others? Yeah, it's a funny one really because we get, get, we get approached by coaches and we don't have any, I don't have any kind of coach, but I do have various people I look to as mentors. Um, and Mike is, very much the number one and what's great about mike is it because he's an investor as well as chairman and so he he has skin in the game mm-hmm. and so he's very interested in the business and our success and i i you know we obviously that diluted our equity and our ownership of the business but it was kind of our baby so to speak and but it's been so he's brought so much more value to the table that that dilution and anything we've had to give up has been totally worth it and it's, it's moved us forward uh, much faster than we expected yeah i suppose that that's one of the, the the key pros of having individual investors as opposed to um corporations that invest in your company i think that there's that uh, human connection and and then the skin in the game and yeah i think that that you know you're not just getting the equity in it's it's the experience and exposure and networking and mentorship as 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 well as anything else um so i suppose we should probably address the 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 rather large elephant in the room um how are you handling the covid situation has it changed the business if so how um kind of talk me through where you guys are at right now yes i think when initially when the sort of the news started to break it back in january we got quite nervous about supply chain management and making sure we'd have enough bikes for the year and all of that. And that didn't seem to be such a big problem, but we didn't really ever, I suppose at the time, like probably most business owners, we didn't really ever think it would become a massive historic challenge for the United Kingdom and was going to change everything we know about modern society, basically. 
And so we didn't, you know, we didn't do that kind of planning. And I don't think anyone seriously did that kind of planning. <laughs> I'd like to right? meet the people that did and I'd probably give them some money to help me out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so then it, and then the sort of the news started to break, the lockdown started to ramp up or, you know, increase. And we obviously had to start to react like everyone else did. And at the time, we became very nervous about what the lockdown would mean for our our business and for our service that we're providing to our members and to the families that use us to get their kids outdoors cycling and i think and you know and we saw in spain they were was it spain was italy where they were banning cycling and actually yep. it was becoming a sort of an activity you're not allowed to do and then but then fortunately our, our, our trade body the bicycle association i feel like it's given a bit of a shout out they worked very hard to to convince the government that actually cycling was a safe means of leisure and if you're putting your millions of citizens into lockdown you need to give them the ability to exercise otherwise we're going to have a second health crisis coming yeah, very very quickly and so we and so as a result cycling has been sort of see is is now a safe form of exercise and it is a really great way to keep your kids entertained in what is a very difficult situation for millions of families you know sort of stuck at home children not being able to go to school in limbo out of their usual routine and so as a result we've seen um we've seen a lot of demand for our, our service and we've been able to help thousands of families now get out on on their bikes during what's been quite nice weather for the time of year uh but in a time when it's really really difficult um for people generally to sort of have a sense of normality so that's been really really nice um but i think we are still you know we're still work coming to terms with how things work i mean the warehouse team are they're able to socially distance um, at the warehouse with big box distribution. So it, there's a lot, there's far fewer people. It's about a thousand square feet per, per employee. So it's um, so it's quite easy for them to sort of stay stay separated, which is good. Um, but then the but then the other side of it, the sort of the cons in the office team, we've had to all go remote, which is working. But I'm probably not an evangelist for remote working because. I think what we're finding is it works for all the day-to-day tasks and we're able to manage and get people to do all their day-to-day tasks. And that's great. But the challenge we're facing is, is the projects where there's, you need more collaborative thinking, more creativity. We're, we are struggling to move those forward as fast as we want to move those forward because people just aren't in the same room. And so they're not able to kind of do that thinking together and come up with those creative solutions. So I'm probably, I'm probably seen as a bit of a dinosaur for that kind of opinion, though. I don't know. I think someone's got a book. I can't remember what the title is, but they talk about the concept of like, I don't think it may have been Google who were pioneers of it, but you, you, by being close in proximity to people and being around them, whether it's in a cafeteria or a shared space or whatever, you increase the likelihood of interaction and therefore creative problem solving, right? And I think by removing that physical nature we do potentially impede on that um so yeah i i think look i think it's 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 great that you guys have got the option to be able to you know pretty quickly turn on the work from home tap and kind of similar to to, to what we've got you know we're, we're all pretty digitally native but i, I yeah I, I definitely don't think this is going to totally uh overhaul the way that we do need to interact in person going forward. I think what might happen, and I know you guys have got a pretty lean team and this might be for, for bigger teams. Our team is quite big and spread out is maybe it rethinks the way you utilize space and interactions going forward. Um, and you'd have maybe 
you know, we've got a big expensive office <laughs> sitting in Farringdon, you know, and it costs a lot of money per, 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 per month. And it's like, do we really need to spend that on, on that big office, you know, every month? That I think is an interesting question to challenge. Yeah. But I, I, I think, definitely think you need the interactions. I think that's right. And I think it's really, it's really, that's a really challenging thought that because you go, okay, so we do we need the office in, in, in Farringdon or we're a borough and, you know, similar sort of thing. And uh, you then go, well, okay, no, we don't, or we can maybe we can shrink down the office. But then the issue goes, how often are you expecting your employees to come into work? And then if they want to, you know, we live in Island Ballam, let's see their flat, that it's just, it's a great, it's just not designed for long-term remote working. And actually even doing a day a week here, working from home is pretty, can be pretty challenging in normal times. Right now, obviously we're doing five days a week and that's all the time. Um, and I think then, because any people have to start thinking about, well, actually, do I want to live in a bigger property which has its own studies so that I can actually work from home properly? That means you're probably going to live further away from the office. And then your transport costs increase when you've got to come into the office. So actually, what's the expectation for coming in? And so it's, I, think it's, I think it's a really complicated uh, question. I think it's quite hard for a lot of people at the junior levels who need to learn, who want to learn from the sort of the, the managers, want to learn their new skills. I think it's going to be quite hard for them to not to work from home and then develop at the same rate as someone who, who comes into the office. And, that, and that's yeah. where, that's why I can't quite see how it all fits together. If you see what I mean, but yeah. saying that, like, you know, if we tried to do this eight years ago, back when, you know, back when I, I was training as an accountant, like it would have been really hard. It was all conference calls. There's no video calls. There were really weird things. And, you know, it's like now we're actually able to have a video call really easily. And, maybe technology is getting to a point where actually we can have much more effective work from home and more more distance working yeah i mean it's interesting i think the 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 great thing about any of these sort of instances where there's a dynamic shift in the world is it it causes us to question these things i think you know before this we were kind of just trundling along right and now there's in this huge uh you know um cataclysmic event you need to rethink the way you think you know and, and i think th- this is healthy for us to as, as as you know businesses in this modern world to, to 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 really question the way we do things so yeah i i i agree i don't think there's a there isn't an answer just straight out the the, the bat there but there's an interesting conversation as to how this is going to look moving forward that's another podcast like i want to touch on a, on a another bit and, and thanks for giving me the kind of um sort of uh insight into where you guys are at right now you're one of uh i think a few brands who are doing this very authentically but you announced an initiative that you're you're working with the nhs in some capacity or or, or there's a um a campaign that you're running with them can you can you talk me through that uh well that's right so we we have a uh, number of adult bikes um which we usually went out to to our sort of paying members through through the website and I think what we saw or like what we saw was NHS workers were looking for a safer way to get to get to work um, and that, you know staying off public transport and <laughs> we're actually having another baby so we were talking to and she was saying it's, it's it's really challenging getting around basically and so we were able to lend her a bike to help her try to get to be uh, sorry excuse me be able to get around at this time and then we realised that actually this is probably something we could offer more widely to other NHS NHS staff members, and so we've been able to widen that scheme, and we are sending out bikes daily 
currently to NHS members to help them help them for free have a bike during during the crisis basically and it's been really nice to be able to just do our little bit to help contribute I suppose we feel that we're doing the other bit we're doing is still getting kids bikes out to members to help get their families out and exercising and being entertained during what is a difficult time for everyone basically yeah, totally. No, I think that's really good. And, and you touched on, on on a point before, and I want to maybe explore that in a little bit more detail. But you you mentioned that you're in a you're in a round of fundraising, and you recently closed a round on 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 CrowdCube. So maybe without going into intimate details, of course, but just talk me through your financing to date. And I suppose maybe I'd be interested, you know, given your background and insights, like how you think this will play out from a funding perspective, maybe more broadly across the kind of e-com subscriptions uh, sector? Yeah, so I think, interesting. So just to to date, we've done, uh, we did a seed equity round in January 2019, and then we did a bit of an extension of that. Um, And then we've also, we do a lot of debt funding as well because because of the nature of our business, we're able to do that. Um, What we're seeing is, I think, and we've just also, sorry, we've also just closed a crowdfunding round as well. Um, that's all sort of coming coming into completion. I think if we were if we were struggling for sales and if we were having a difficult, a very difficult trading period of time, all funding would be off at the moment for us. But fortunately, we have a really positive story, so we're able to tell that to our new investors and our existing investors, and that's that's really really helped us throughout this period of time. So everything I say is caveated with that. Um, we're seeing, I think. Non-bank lending, which is where we traditionally get get our debt funding from, so that's sort of all finance, if you like, um, is really freezing over. We're not, we are, we're seeing people are being much more cautious on that side of things. Um, the civil loan scheme, so the uh, coronavirus business interruption loans, I think I've got some friends who are applying for them because their businesses are generally genuinely interrupted. We're not genuinely interrupted. And we've been told that all commercial lending is kind of on pause whilst they deal with these civils, but they don't seem to be moving very quickly. So I suppose what I'm saying is we're seeing debt funding as a very, very challenging uh, place at the moment, basically. And and I don't I think it's going to be difficult, at least until lockdown is over, to get any form of meaningful debt funding that isn't a civil. And then more from a capacity perspective, there just isn't the resource to be able to deal with all of the the, the, the debt findings and kind of inquiries and, and activity that's going on at the moment whilst trying oh, to deal dude, with you're COVID. On, you're getting, yeah, you're getting onto onto a favorite topic here. Yeah, I think it is a it is a capacity <laughs> yeah. issue. But the issue the issue is the twenty percent, right? So the government said we're gonna guarantee eighty percent, and that's awesome. And why don't they just say we'll guarantee hundred percent? Because then the banks can write on very different they can write very different loan paper. And that's easier for them. Mm. Why are they asking for this 20%? But actually, the truth is, they, they, what they're really trying to do is create interruption loans that mean you're giving business sort of 100 grand to cover their overheads for three months or something like that. And, and it just doesn't seem to make sense to me to ask the banks then to stump up 20%. Because then mm. the banks have to go through all of their usual underwriting process. Yeah, or their the rigorous. Is, yeah, 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 yeah. And the truth is, is you can't write a loan note that says, if you don't give me this money, I will go bust. So therefore, you should lend me some money. This doesn't, you know, that's not why. That's not how debt funders operate. They'll go, well, why should I lend you this money? Because you just, you just said you're going to go bust, and that's where the problem comes in. It's a great, it's a great idea. It's a great scheme, but I just think, to me, I think the obvious thing is to make it, uh, make it a hundred percent guaranteed, up to two hundred and fifty thousand pounds by the government. 
Now you're probably going to tell me that that already exists, and I just haven't. haven't <laughs> Funny you should it's mention that. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but but this is what I mean. Like I, I just think there's I think there's a couple of issues here that's, that's really slowing things down. That's making the banks a little bit too cautious, and that's that's kind of the capacity issue. Whereas if they were able to write smaller unsecured loans at 100% guaranteed, I think you'd get a lot more money out there much faster to the sort of the smaller businesses that really need it. Mm. And they really do need these injections to sort of keep them going for, for a period of time. Whereas, yeah, obviously on the bigger debt funding, yeah, you, probably, you do need more probably or less government guarantees. I mean, I'm not so sure on that side of things. Yeah, but um, yeah. I suppose from the equity side of things, we've, we just closed the crowdfunding round. That's gone okay, which is good. I think it got a bit, it didn't quite go as fast as we wanted it to go because I think it was um, because the coronavirus sort of came in and it slightly swamped the news basically as, as we were closing out the round. But we're still really happy with the, with, to get to 620,000, which is, which is a really good, good result for us. Um, and, then, and then we've also got some institutional investment, which is coming in. Now, fortunately, we've had all our face-to-face meetings that we needed to have before the coronavirus came along and socially distanced us from, from doing the face-to-face meetings. But I think it would be nigh on impossible to do a big multi-million pound funding round without having face-to-face meetings. I think you just wouldn't be able to actually make that, that happen because there's so much importance placed on seeing the whites of the eyes and getting to know your investors and then getting to know you and understanding. Totally. I mean, if do. anything more so in this environment, right? Like, you know, uh, the, the, the wonders of Zoom are, are, are amazing, but without that personal connection, I imagine investors are going to be even more jittery. So it's like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Like they might really like the business or they like the individuals and the entrepreneurs, but they can't, you know, feel and taste them. And you know what I mean? They can't really get the essence of them, you know, through Zoom. And so, yeah, I think it's a really challenging um, scenario. You, you touched on an interesting point before, and I'm keen to get your take. And, and it doesn't, again, it, it, it doesn't need to be sensitive information, but maybe just your perspective. Do you think that there are uh, investors that are have seen this? Well, maybe not this because it's been you know a bit unprecedented, but they've kind of weathered this storm before and are a little bit more okay with it compared to maybe others or do you feel there's a, a, a general consensus across the board that things are just really really difficult right now in terms of a funding perspective i think you know i think it's uh, there's a lot of dry powder that's a phrase that's you read in the ft all the time but there the, you know the funds have raised a lot of money so there is a lot there is i think i think about 200 billion dollars in bc funds which is which is pretty huge um, that hasn't been deployed yet uh but but so i but i do think that this is so unprecedented that people do still need another level of clarity. Uh, I think the pandemic is, you, you know, we don't know how long this is going to go on for. But you, as you see countries like Sweden and Austria and even Spain, I saw, are beginning to move out of lockdown, I think normality will begin to return. And then it'll be a question of, well, what's actually changed in business consumer habits? Who's, who's, who's doing well out of that? Who's not doing quite so well out of that? And who are we backing? but it's an interesting but it is an interesting period of time yeah i mean fascinating right so i mean that's an interesting point you touch on there in terms of consumer habits what's your kind of take on on this at a at a macro level maybe like do you think this is a minor blip and the world generally from a consumer perspective is going to just i don't know forget about this horrible nightmare and and go back or do, do you think we're on the cusp of some fundamental change in terms of the way people consume um i think i think people 
I think people will will change. I think there will be a broader shift to online. I think because people are now having to buy a lot more of their stuff that they have in their general day to day lives online because these shops are closed, and it's it's actually really hard to go into a supermarket. You have to queue up, and mm. and that those are the only shops that are really open. And so then you're being driven to places like Amazon, and you're seeing them and and other smaller e-commerce places like ourselves, and you're seeing seeing these places do do well out of it as that's, that's where consumer habits are going um and i think that that is going to be a challenge for the more traditional bricks and mortar shops in going forwards into the future because i don't think you will see i think once people get start ordering things online it just becomes a, a change in habits and they just don't you know they don't really ever go back to ordering through the shop because then they start you know they start using their time elsewhere but then I do, but I think people will miss things like hospitality. So dining and pubs and all of that. I think people will miss that. And I think that will all come back. And then as well as holidays as well. And this mm, is a really interesting yeah. thing is that, you know, a lot of people right now are, don't have a lot to spend a lot of money on. And so it'll be interesting to see what this is going to do. Is this pent up revenue that's going to be dropped into the market after three months or two months of lockdown? Or is this just dead, dead weight lost revenue that will never be spent, and people will just just start spending incrementally as we as we increase as lockdown decreases? And I, I mean that's going to be a really interesting point as to what happens with the recovery after this, and how long will be or how long a recession is going to be. Um, but I think, but as I say, I, I do think that online grocery perhaps hasn't done so well out of this, but I think broadly online consumer products are doing quite well out of it. Yeah, I think that the, the macro statistics definitely support that concept, and 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 I think that I think a lot of 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 brands and and sectors will be forced to go online. I think they've maybe been holding back, um, and, and you know, a lot of high street type um, brands I think are going to be forced to look at their online offerings, which is an interesting concept. But yeah, you you touched on an interesting point there in terms of this potential income that is going to be what released in q3 q4 you know hypothetically speaking that's a really interesting observation and yeah how deep is the economic cut going to be that does it get unleashed upon the world or is it squirreled away because (laughs) this is only the the tip of the iceberg and the you know the rest of of this is going to hit us towards the end of the latter part of this year and into next and i think that 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 would be an interesting sort of um uh, statistic to to keep an eye on uh, as we roll along throughout the rest of this year. Yeah, I think so. I think it's and it's going. I think it's going to come down to just when they start easing up the lockdown. I think if we start seeing schools and nurseries going back in uh, after the first May bank holiday, which has been mooted, and obviously you can only lift the lockdown when the pandemic begins to subside. No one is ever going to suggest we should lift the lockdown for economic sake only, right? But um, but but if you do start to see that, and they are able to begin lifting lockdown. It, it then becomes a relatively short period of time in people's memories and maybe we will see a v-shaped recovery as they talk about but then i think if it starts dragging on into sort of back end of june well that's a long time and i, I really think you're looking at a, a lot of economic suffering and damage being done um because i just don't think the way way we set up society it, be, it is not possible to be in lockdown and be and be sort of economically successful and we just won't be able to we just won't be able to sustain that effectively, I don't think. 
Yeah, and I don't think the th- th- this kind of new online recovery world is it, we, it, it's not we can't get that one eighty degree so quickly, right? I think it'll still take time. You know, I think this is kind of open people's eyes to the idea of you know purchasing online or using you know video conferencing systems, but it's not like you turn the switch back on and okay, the world's back to where it was, and suddenly everything's changed, and we're that's going to be a longer sort of um process so yeah i mean hopefully we can see some of that recovery stuff um happen pretty quickly after all this is over but it'd be very interesting to see anyway i'm gonna i'm gonna leave COVID alone for a while because <laughs> we could we could spend an yeah. entire 30 more minutes just talking about that so i, I want to touch on a, a on a couple of points and I, i'm keen to getting back to the sort of the bike club model i mean this concept do you think it could apply to other verticals and is that in your sort of maybe post 2020 ideas or, or, or planning or, or is that just too far out right now to be thinking about? Yeah, no, no, hundred percent. I think, I think we've always done kids bikes because um, we started on limited capital and they're relatively easy product to start buying and building a group of like-minded borrowers with. But I think as we grow, we will have the opportunity to use our existing technology and our existing operations to offer other other products and move into other verticals, as you mentioned. Um, and I think that's the way we see we see a lot of growth for the business, and we see it as a really exciting opportunity. I think the the brand itself, the Bike Club, is probably only suitable for kids' bikes or, or family cycling, or maybe other cycling products as well. But um, but I think there'll be other brands that we we have to set up using the back end of the, the existing company. And, and move into different areas. Uh, so there's things like uh, mobility scooters for the elderly. That's another product that we mm. could really help people by creating a more longer term product. And then there's also um, gym equipment. You can guess where that comes from, having a chamber fitness first. Um, home gym equipment is uh, an interesting market where there's a lot of, lot of there's, there's not that many options out there for financing. It's all pretty classic. Um, if we can create some kind of sharing economy product, that'd be brilliant. Um, and there's a lot of and there's lots of other areas that we are we are sort of looking at and trying to see what we can what we can make work. What we really like though is a product that is slightly modular in its in its in its uh, specifications, so you can fix and repair it. But it also has comes with a a degrading utility curve for the actual user, and then a rental product works really wonderfully for it. Yeah, and I think that that I mean that really taps into kind of it feels that's where big chunks of the world are going right again this is going to could be another podcast but the idea of you know your life becomes a subscription model you know you you subscribe to potentially everything and the idea of the sharing economy and you know utilizing and and sharing resources across a community i think is a is a really interesting concept and it does feel that that's kind of where things are going right i mean automobile is another good example right that's awesome, though, right? You start when you start thinking about that, you start to realise the enormous uh, sustainability angle to it. Because actually, you then become you stop throwing, you stop buying cheaper products, you start renting much more high quality products that are then fixed and repaired, and have much longer lives, and have much higher utility for the number of users that use them. And so then society is able to consume more for less waste, and that is. That is true sort of blue planet thinking. And that's really exciting for me 
I think that, that, that if we can move the world further towards the subscription model for much higher quality products that we then share as groups of people, that is brilliant. That's a really good, that's a really good, easy way for people to minimize their impact on, on the wider world and what they're doing and still be able to enjoy the fruits of their labors effectively. Mm. That's a whole other podcast. All right. I'm going to kind of just sort yeah. of start to bring it, bring it towards a close. Uh, I want to ask you a couple of questions. So um, I want to ask you, given, I mean, you guys have been around for a little while. So what's the best business decision you've made and what has been maybe not so much the best decision you've made thus far? Uh, the best is easy. And I think I touched on it earlier, but that was doing or bringing Mike on as an investor and then our chairman. Uh, that has my bringing Mike Balfour in, the founder of Fitness First, that has been transformative for the way that we thought about our business and the way that we've gone about our business. Um, and it's, you know, dilution of equity is seriously cheap for what we what the value we got out of Mike. So I'm, I'm, that's a decision that we are so happy about basically every day. So that's that's been absolutely the best. Um, worst decision, it's kind of hard to to sort of point to one thing that we've got wrong. <laughs> but that's good. I think, it, yeah, it's an evolution, you right, know? of small maybe bumps that turn into something like, oh, okay, maybe we shouldn't have done that. But yeah, yeah no, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to explore. Yeah. But I think the key thing is, is I think um, uh, it probably goes back to the piece of advice that was given by my former boss, the chairman of KPMG, um, which is you can't manage what you can't measure. And if you're not measuring the output of certain decisions you're probably not able to then make a very good decision and i think that that is where we've made where we make mistakes you can see it's when we we not sort of measured something effectively got the data that we needed and then we just we then haven't been able to take a fast enough decision to correct the course of, of travel and there are plenty of areas where we've done that um which i'm sure there'll be plenty more but we obviously we iterate and we try to get improve the business and get better as managers ourselves every time basically that's very that's say sage bit of learning and a sage bit of advice okay two final questions what does the next 12 months look like or maybe beyond and finally where are you going to go once you're out of lockdown what travel destination have you guys got planned uh so okay so i think the next 12 months we really want to close our series a funding round uh so that would be a huge milestone if we managed to achieve that which i think is on track so that'd be awesome and i really want to lend um over twenty thousand bucks this year to, to members across the country and that'd be a really exciting milestone for us with just just growing bigger than boris bikes so that'll make us uh, much bigger oh, congratulations that's amazing Brilliant. um and then i think from a travel perspective uh, we're really, Alex and I are really keen skiers and um, we've had to not go skiing uh, as a result of COVID-19. So we would be keen, I think we'd be, I'd be keen to try and make a trip to the uh, Alps if we can this, this summer to go and, go and see the mountains again and try and make up for not being able to go skiing this winter. Um, but, but we'll see. We've, um, we've had to put off a family trip to Colombia which is where um, a lot of Alex's family are. And that's been really, really gutting for us. But hopefully we'll be able to get there next year, next year instead. I, I, I wish you all the luck in that. And I'm sure you'll get there very soon. James, thank you so much for joining me. That was great. Cheers, Tim. Good to speak. Thank you. 
there you have it. A big thank you to James for joining me on the podcast. If you want to check them out, head to thebikeclub.co or find them on Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, LinkedIn, etc. Before I go, a final shout out to my sponsor for this episode, Clavio, the growth marketing platform used by more than 30,000 e-commerce brands. Find them at clavio.com slash your basket is empty. And as always, if you like the podcast, share it, like it, download it, review it, tell your friends and your enemies, they are both going to love it. I'll see you next time.